And what has been going through my mind and what has been going through what I've witnessed over the, I, I would say since this year started with all this COVID stuff, that people are afraid. People are concerned and they don't understand what's going on. And they just want all of this to be over. And what it really comes down to is, did you know that fear not is mentioned 365 times in the Bible? Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Fear not. It, fear itself is mentioned 500, but there's, there's 135 times where it's mentioned as a good thing. Fear of the Lord. But to not fear, don't do it. Fear causes us to become paralyzed from moving from a known state to an unknown. It keeps us from doing what we need to do where God is concerned. God has a plan of what He wants us to do. And when we are afraid, we don't step forward. We just don't do it. But you know, through that crippling thing, there's two companions that go hand in hand with fear. And that's worry and anxiety. And those two things, all they do is create self-doubt and confusion about the decisions that we make. Oh, God, am I making the right one? Oh, I don't know. And you beat, people beat themselves up over nothing. Christ tells us in John 14, 27, peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. I do not give you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. Solid words for us all in these days. And we all know that worrying accomplishes literally nothing. Most of us don't have time to throw away on worrying. I'm a very busy person. What little bit of free time I have, I don't want to waste it worrying about things I have no control over. None. Zero zilch. I don't have time for it. Someone defined worry as a small trickle of fear that meanders through the mind until it uh, becomes a channel in which all other thoughts are drained. If we're so worried and afraid of something, that's all that we focus on. That's all that's done. And you can tell when people are worried and, and, and afraid. Their anxiety levels just increase threefold to tenfold. <clears throat> And worry is destructive in so many ways. It drains us of our energy and it drains us of our strength. Proverbs 12, 25 tells us, worry weighs a person down and encouraging word cheers a person up. We sit there and think about uh, when you worry, you're not trusting in God. Because what happens if I make that wrong decision? What if it's not what God wants? I can't move. It kills the witness. That energy that we put into worrying could be better used in prayer. God's going to give us an answer. He always has and always does and always will. What did it tell us in Philippians 4, verses 6 and 7? Don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need and thank Him for all He's done. Then you will experience God's peace, which exceeds anything we can understand. 
His peace will guard your hearts and minds as you live in Christ Jesus. When we worry and become anxious, it puts our focus in the wrong direction. We need to keep our eyes focused on God. We need to be able to look to Him to give us that rest and assurance, to give us that inner peace. No matter what, especially in difficult times. 1 Peter 5, 7 says, Give all your worries and cares to God, for He cares about you. Did you know that all the time that we've been talking, the Israelites were so afraid to trust Moses and to believe in God's power when they left Egypt. They were afraid when they got to the Red Sea and there was nowhere to go when the army was upon them. They were afraid uh, uh, to cross over to the promised land. They didn't take that step. They were absolutely afraid. They were paralyzed from going into action. The second time they came across the, across the Jordan, what did the people say to Joshua? Anyone that does not cross this river, anyone who doubts, anyone who is afraid, we are going to kill. They weren't going to put up with it anymore. If you're not going to trust in God, we're going to kill you. Everything still required one thing, one very important thing, and that was a step of faith. Isn't it? The sea did not part until God said, what are you waiting for? Cross. The river Jordan did not back up and stop until the priest took that step of faith and stepped in the water. It's no different than today and what we're facing. What are we afraid of? What are we worried about? What are we, what are we anxious about? Let's see, oh gosh, we have the COVID. We have our health. We have... Uh, political issues, church issues, money. Heck, we even have family issues that we're worried about, that we're afraid of and, and concerned about. And it cripples us. It keeps us from doing what God wants us to do, which is what? Share Christ. Be the living example. Pastor Danny made a comment last week that when we met together, and he says, not stepping out in faith is like stepping right out to your parking lot here and getting your butts in your cars and trying to turn, uh, turn your car while it's in park. You don't put the key in. You just get in and you try and drive away. That car will not move until you do the one thing, and that's put that key in the ignition and start it. If we don't step out in faith, God can't use us either. We'll be just like that parked car. Mm -hmm. Sitting there with a lump of lead and steel. Okay, aluminum plastic nowadays. When fear knocks on your door, send faith to answer it. Romans 8, 38 and 39 says, For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither present nor the future, nor any powers, neither higher nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. When fear knocks on your door, send faith to answer it. Let's go to prayer.
You know that we live in a crazy and chaotic world. You also know my struggles in my daily life. When life gets to be too much, please help me come to you. Calm my thoughts and emotions and open my heart to your peace, comfort and wisdom. Help me not to live in fear. Please reduce the feelings of fear and anxiety that plague me. Help me rest in you and trust in you as I navigate through this broken world. In your name I pray, amen. Psalm 53, verse 1. Only fools say in their hearts, there is no God. They are corrupt and their actions are evil. Not one of them does good. David was on his way to kill Nabal. He was going to not only kill Nabal, he was going to kill all the men that worked for him and any men that were in his household. Why? Because Nabal insulted David. This was not anything unusual for Nabal because we're told that he was evil and wicked in all his dealings. This was normal for him. This was his character. But what David was about to do was very uncharacteristic. Every time he faced issues in life, what did he do? He went to God and asked for guidance. He went to God and asked for mercy. He went to God and asked for His grace. And the handful of times that he didn't, he got himself in trouble. And this is one of those times. He's going to go and do something that he should not do. It's going to harm his witness for God. It's just a good thing that Nabal was married to a highly intelligent and good-looking woman named Abigail because she showed up and she stopped him. She said, David, what you're doing is wrong. Not in those words. She was a little more gentle than that. But she convinced him to change what he was going to do. And David listened to her advice. And he did not do what he planned on doing. He did not kill Nabal with his hands. He allowed God to take care of it. Well, when David heard that he was dead because God took care of it, he sent for Abigail and took her as a wife. And David is once again presented with the temptation to kill Saul. That's what we pick up in uh, 1 Samuel 26, verses 1 through 4. Then the Ziphites came to Saul at Gibeah and saying, Is not David hiding in the hill of Hachilah, which is before Jeshimon? So Saul arose and went down to the wilderness of Ziph, having with him 3,000 chosen men of Israel to search for David in the wilderness of Ziph. Saul camped in the hill of Hashalah, which is before Jashon, before the road, and David staying in the wilderness. When he saw that Saul came after him into the wilderness, David sent out spies, and he knew that Saul was definitely coming. This is twice now these Ziphites have tried to turn David over. It's twice now. David wrote about them in Psalm 54. Either it was on because of this occasion or it was the one that happened previously in, in chapter 23 where they tried to turn him over. And in Psalm 54, 3, David describes them as this. For strangers have arisen against me and violent men have sought my life. They have not set God before them. He called them strangers. They were cruel men and they were attacking him. Did they have a reason? They didn't respect God. God. 
Did they have a reason to hate David? They don't know him personally. And he's done things for them that there will be no reason for them to hate. He protected all their people when he was wandering in the wilderness, hiding from Saul. He kept everything protected from the Philistine raids. And yet these people were turning him in, trying to get rid of him. And the only way that you can think of that would be the reason why was because the people wanted to gain Saul's favor. They wanted him to think, see how good the servants we are. We're turning them over. They also probably figured he's going to reward us handsomely. King Saul, he's a wealthy individual. And they know that he can make them rich. All they got to do is turn them over David. And that's what they do. They make that attempt. David figures out, gosh, I'm hearing these rumors. Saul's coming. He sent out spies. There is no area where David did not keep track of where Saul was. If somebody was chasing you constantly trying to kill you, wouldn't you want to know exactly where they were? Wouldn't you have your ear to the ground, your spies out, constantly knowing this is where he's located so that I can move if I need to. This is where David's at. He knows. He knows without a doubt Saul's coming. And it's interesting when you think about that. Saul, in his previous case where he had a chance to kill him in the cave and he didn't, Saul promised him, Oh, David, my son, I'm so sorry for what I did to you. I promise I will never come after you again. David didn't take him up on his word. David knew. He knew that Saul would not live up to it. That's why he didn't go back to the kingdom or the palace with him. He went on his way with his men. It was sincere and emotional and a deep apology, but it just didn't last very long. Saul gathered another 3,000 men and went after him once again. And it just goes to demonstrate how upset this is. This is. I got 3,000 men and I can greatly outnumber you and your 600. When I catch you, you're going to be hurt and die. David's got his eye on Saul at all times, but Saul doesn't know where he is. 1 Samuel 26, verses 5 and 8, 5 through 8. David then arose and came to the place where Saul had camped. And David saw the place where Saul lay, and Abner the son of Ner, the commander of his army. And Saul was lying in the circle of the camp, and the people were camped all around him. Then David said to Ahimelech, the Hittite, and to Abishai, the son of Zeruah, Jake, uh, Joab's brother, saying, Who will go down with me to Saul in the camp? And Abishai said, I will go down with you. So David and Abishai came to the people by night, and behold, Saul lay sleeping inside the circle of the camp with his spear stuck in the ground at his head. And Abner and the people were lying around him. Then Abishai said to David, Today God has delivered your enemy into your hand. Now therefore, please let me strike him with the spear to the ground with one stroke, and I will not strike him the second time. The last time David and Saul met, David was hiding in a cave. And Saul, well, not just happen chanced upon him. God arranged it, of course. 
But this time, David actively sought out Saul. I think he's tired of running. I think he's going there to confront everything that's taking place. He could have sent any of his 600 men, go check out what's going on. He didn't have to risk himself to do what he's doing, but he does. Why should he go on such a terrible, dangerous mission? It's because he was showing boldness and courage and trusting in God. Isn't that a wonderful thing? To know that when you trust in God, you can be courageous and bold and never worry about being hurt, never worry about being killed. What an awesome situation. As he gets there, the entire army's asleep. And in the middle of them all is Saul. And his spear is at his head. And he's got a couple other things that belong to him around him. And he sees that the man that's supposed to be protecting him, the commander of the army, is asleep also. They're all dead asleep. Abishai goes, hey, David, check it out. It's a thing from God. Let me go and kill him. I can do it, and they'll never know. Isn't this the same thing that his men pointed out when they were in the cave? He's vulnerable. We can kill him. And no one would ever know. Well, Abishai knew that David wouldn't kill him. Abishai knew that if I did it, then David could literally tell anybody in the world, I didn't touch him. I didn't touch him. I'm not the one that raised my hand against him. But he wouldn't allow Abishai to do it this time either. He says, I can't. No one can touch the anointed of God. Abishai wanted to even use Saul's own spear. Boy, talk about poetic justice. Here he would be with Saul's own spear, the one that he tried several times to kill David with when he threw it at him when he was in the palace. He would kill him with his own spear. And it would be considered God's righteous judgment. 1 Samuel 26, verses 9 through 12. But David said to Abishai, do not destroy him, for who can stretch out his hand against the Lord's anointing and be without guilt? David also said, as the Lord lives, surely the Lord will strike him or his day will come that he dies or he will go down in battle and perish. The Lord forbid that I should stretch out my hand against the Lord's anointed. But now please take the spear that is at his head and the jug of water and let us go. So David took the spear and the jug of water from beside Saul's head and they went away. But no one saw or knew it, nor did anyone awake for they were all asleep because a sound sleep from the Lord had fallen on them. David sticks to his guns and he would not kill Saul and he would not allow Abishai to kill him either. The only way for Saul to be removed is for God to do it. And he tells him, God will let him die when it's time. The only way for God, uh, for him to be removed was God and God alone. And David demonstrated, his, demonstrated God's love 
for Saul and his actions. 1 Corinthians 13, 7. Remember what love is. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. David has been bearing everything and he's been enduring it all. And he won't raise his hand. David's in a, and David's position, uh, he, he could say, I showed love and let him off once before. I'm full of love, but I'm not stupid. Saul had his chances and he blew it. David may have also been a little more righteous than most people if he would have done it. Saul went back on everything he promised him. He told Jonathan, as long as I live, I will never kill David. He went to kill David and he got a part of his robe cut off. Oh, David, I'm so sorry. I don't know what's becoming over me. I promise you I won't do it. And yet here he is again. He's constantly coming after him. When it came to striking the... Uh, striking down and anointed king of Israel. God did not need David's services, did he? He may have learned that lesson on his way to Nabal. to killed him. I don't need your help to take care of situations. Keep your innocence in that. After all, every breath that Saul takes is a gift from God. God could allow a wicked man at any time to take him out. He does not need... David to do anything. David once again spares his life. We looked at what it said in Romans 12 where vengeance is concerned. It belongs to God and he will repay it. If vengeance belongs to God, it does not belong to us. Romans 12, 21 tells us what we're supposed to do. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That is a hard thing to do. We're supposed to love our enemies and never repay evil with evil. That is a difficult thing to do. I could have easily, and I have to admit, after dealing with Jaylene's mother, I wanted to throttle her. I wanted to shake her and say, what's the matter with you? I wanted to treat her in a manner that was unbecoming. As a man of God, I resisted. I'm sure the rest of the family might have said, yeah, but no, I resisted. It is quite likely that David noticed that these guys were in a deep sleep. He could have made all the noise he wanted and they wouldn't have woke up. It's quite possible for that. But he knew there was a reason for this. 1 Samuel 26, verses 13 through 16, Then David crossed over to the other side and stood on top of the mountain at a distance with a large area between them. He's not stupid. He's not taking no chances. And David called to the people and to Abner, the son of Ner, saying, Will you not answer Abner? Then answer, uh, Abner replied, Who are you who calls the king? So David said to Abner, Are you not a man? And who is like you in Israel? Why then have you not guarded your lord the king? For one of the people came to destroy the king your lord. This thing that you have done is not good. As the Lord lives, all of you must surely die because you did not guard your Lord, the Lord's anointed. And now see where the king's spear is and the jug of the water that was in his head. Even though David knew that the deep sleep was something God brought on, 
After he left the camp, he crossed the ravine and he went to the other side of the mountain and put a great distance between them. And I'm sure that when the time came, it was not one of these. And you have to get them turn around here. After! Wake up! I don't think it was that. I don't think it was that kind of a challenge. I think it came down to Abner. Abner, what have you done? His voice, one voice, was enough to wake up the camp. Can you imagine? He calls Abner out by name. He calls him out and tells him, you deserve to die. In those days, if you were a guard or somebody of a prominent importance protecting the king and you fell asleep, you were supposed to be put to death because you failed in your duties. And here is Abner. He is a brave man. He is a valorous man. And he is right there with the king. And he's protecting him. And he's telling him, you are in charge of the army. You're in charge of protecting the king. And yet you fell asleep. And for that, you deserve to die. See where the spear is. See where the water jug is by his head. Oh my gosh, it's in the hand of the person the king considers an enemy. I could have killed him, but I didn't. 1 Samuel 26, verses 17 through 20. Then Saul recognized David's voice and said, Is this your voice, my son David? Here he goes again. And David said, It is my voice, my lord the king. He also said, Why then is my lord pursuing his servant? For what have I done? Or what evil is in my hand? Now therefore, please let my lord the king listen to the words of his servant. If the Lord has stirred you up against me, let him accept an offering. But if it is men, cursed are they before the Lord, for they have driven me out today so that I would have no attachment with the inheritance of the Lord, saying, go and serve other gods. Now then, do not let my blood fall to the ground away from the presence of the Lord, for the king of Israel has come out to search for a single flea, just as one hunts a partridge in the mountain. When Saul calls out, David replies in great humility. He could have rubbed it in his face. He could have put on a, a, a display of, of having a superiority over Saul, over Saul, but he doesn't. David was in the right. When you are in the right, you do not have to put somebody down to make yourself feel superior. You can deal with people in humility. And this is what David does. Psalm 7, verses 3, and 5, or 3 through 5. Oh, Lord, my God, if I have done this, if there is injustice in my hands, if I have rewarded evil to my friend or have plundered him who without cause was my adversary, let the Lord pursue my soul and overtake him and let him trample my life down to the ground and lay my glory in the dust. David first asked Saul to consider the facts and to clearly make a good decision. Just like he did the last time out when he spared Saul's life. Saul, if this is, if this is God telling you to take me out, make a sacrifice to God. Repent. If it's men, 
who's given you bad counsel. Let the Lord curse them. All they're trying to do is driving me out of my old country. They're keeping me from worshiping God the way I'm supposed to worship God. I can't even be with my fellow people. I can't be with my family. Let God curse them. But David still gives him that out. David knows that Saul is nothing but jealous and bitter and really a worldly kind of guy. He's making these decisions on his own, but David says, here's your out. If this is what's going on, this is what you can still say, I'm sorry, and not take the, take the blame. He could admit that his actions were wrong to David without admitting they were him, when they, in all reality they were. And David revealed his own heart struggle under the pressure from Saul's relentless persecution. Saul, I'm being driven away from God. I can't worship. I can't be with my friends, my family, my wife. I can't be anywhere. You're constantly chasing me down. And it brought up a really interesting thing. All of this pressure is, is tempting, or is going to be tempting him to leave, to go live among people he's not supposed to. David concluded his appeal with Saul with a simple request. Saul, please don't kill me. <laughs> in our own type of words. The last part of verse 20, just as one hunts a partridge in the mountains. I had to look into this a little bit in order to understand exactly what David was telling, to understand what David was truly feeling. There are partridges all over the world, right? And partridges live in the lowlands. But did you know that the Arab nations hunt these things in a really interesting way? According to uh, British theologian Adam Clark, he said, it is worthy of remark that the Arabs, observing that partridges being put up several times, soon become so weary as not to be able to fly. They in this manner hunt them upon the mountains until at last they can knock them down with their clubs. It was in this manner that Saul hunted David, coming hastily upon him and putting him up from time to time in hopes that he should at length by frequent repetitions of it, be able to destroy him. Is David or is David not becoming tired of running? He almost got caught the last time around the mountainside. If God hadn't sent the messenger saying, the Philistines are attacking the land, he may have caught him. David is tired of running. He's getting weary. This explained a whole lot. And that really meant something there. I understand where David's coming from. 1 Samuel 26, verse 21. Then Saul said, I have sinned. Return, my son David, for I will not harm you again because of my life was precious in your sight this day. Behold, I have played the fool and have committed a serious, a serious error. Well, the last time Saul was in this situation, he was overcome with emotion and regret. But this time, something's just not quite there. It's almost as if he's making this apology and saying, David, please come back. Only there's no please in it. It's almost as if he's admitting, yep, I got busted again. I got caught by you again doing what I promised I wouldn't do. Yep, he got the better of me. 
Do we treat people that way? When we're having issues, do we make a sincere apology? Do we, do we mean it in a godly manner? Or is it one of those that we just say, gosh, I'm sorry, I got caught again by you. Got to come from a godly way. 1 Samuel 26, verses 23 through 25. David replied, behold, the spear of the king. Now, I, now let one of the young men come over and take it. The Lord will repay each man for his righteousness uh, and his faithfulness. For the Lord delivered you into my hand today, but I refuse to stretch out my hand against the Lord's anointed. Now behold, as your life was highly valued in my sight this day, so may my life be highly valued in the sight of the Lord. And may he deliver me from all distress. Then Saul said to David, Blessed are you, my son David. You will accomplish much and surely prevail. So David went on his way, and Saul returned to his place. David trusted in God who blesses the righteous and the faithful. Matthew 7, 2. For in the way you judge, you will be judged, and by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. David understood this principle long before Jesus told the rest of us. In David's mind, he was saying, I want that extra big scoop of God's mercy. Therefore, I'm going to give that extra big scoop to Saul. Well, that generous measure of mercy later on in life would be a great blessing to David, so to speak. David wanted to fulfill his call to be the next king of Israel. But he, and he wanted both that throne and the blessing of God. Saul invited David to come back. Come on back, David. I, I won't do it again. Well, David did not, or did not return and accept that invitation. How does all of this apply to our lives today? Well, none of us may be experiencing the things that David has been going through with Saul. And I'm actually kind of glad of that. I would hate to hear that any of you are being chased by some murderous homicidal maniac trying to kill you and you're constantly having to run because that means I wouldn't see you here on Sunday morning. But we do face our own difficulties. We each have the things that we face in life. We find people that we would rather avoid. We find people we don't want to have anything to do with. They've hurt us. And we want so bad to dish out the things back to them, what they do to us. Human nature. But we're not supposed to do that, though. I really liked how this was put in the message version with Matthew 5, 44 through 48. You're familiar with the old written law. Love your friend and its unwritten companion. Hate your enemy. I'm challenging that. I'm telling you to love your enemies. Let them bring out the best in you, not the worst. When someone gives you a hard time, respond with the energies of prayer. For then you are working out your true selves, your God-created selves. This is what God does. He gives his best, the sun to warm and the rain to nourish to everyone, regardless the good and the bad, the nice and the nasty. If you do, this, if you all do this in love, the lo if you if you all if all you do is love the lovable, do you expect a bonus? Anybody can do that. 
If you simply say hello to those who greet you, do you expect a medal? Any run-of-the-mill sinner does that. In a word, what I'm saying is grow up. Grow up. You're the kingdom's subjects. Now live like it. Live out your God-created identity. Live generously and graciously towards others the way God lives towards you. Pretty simplistic. In basically everyday words, very simplistic. We are supposed to treat everyone the same with compassion and mercy and grace. Just like I treated her mother. I didn't throttle her. I did not talk nasty to her. I did not do anything crazy. I still treated her with love. I still showed compassion. Because I know that she was going through a difficult time. Just like everything in life. Treat everybody the same. David's just at wit's end with dealing with Saul. And he wanted to escape. Proverbs 20 verse 3 tells us, it is, an, it is an honor for a man to keep aloof from strife, but every fool will be quarreling. Sometimes a person will take out their frustration and anger on you when you aren't really the problem. But you know, that really doesn't make you feel any better, does it? It still hurts. It's still painful to be accused of something that you know you had nothing to do with. You can take that and turn it over. You don't have to carry that burden for someone else's issues. You might actually just be representing something they don't like. Christianity, God-fearing, God-following, or maybe you're in a position of authority. And they don't like it. Proverbs 16, verses 27 through 30 says, Scoundrels create trouble. Their words are a destructive blaze. A troublemaker plants seeds of strife. Gossip separates the best of friends. Violent people mislead their companions, leading them down a harmful path. With narrowed eyes, people plot evil. With a smirk, they plan their mischief. Sometimes it's just better to walk away from an argument than to continue to dwell on it. This is, not, this is not liberty walk away from everything. There are those things that are worth fighting for and worth fighting about. But you don't let them spoil your relationship. You don't allow their actions to spoil your walk and your witness for God. That's important. When this happens, you have to allow the Lord to give you the guidance you have to Lord God to give you the directions on how to handle it. Turn it over to him. David doesn't do that again here. David makes another rash decision. And he leaves to go live with the Philistines. He did not stick around to wait and see if Saul was going to be true to his word this time. He went where he wasn't supposed to be. And he's going to live there until it's time for him to become king of Israel. And we're going to see in the next coming weeks just how much this terrible decision is going to create havoc in his life and put him in situations he really shouldn't have been putting himself into. We are the same. We are the same when we make rash decisions. 
we run and we flee from things that, well, we ain't talked to God about first yet. We haven't turned it over to God. We haven't allowed God to do what God does best. And it can affect how we work with God. And that's what we have to be careful of.